indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. Somebody help me out. You are amazing. All powerful, untamable, all struck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim. Well, open your Bibles with me uh, to Exodus chapter 32, and I think this is appropriate considering the climate we're in as a nation, as a people, as a church. Uh, Excuse me today because I am standing here with much fear and trepidation. My heart is almost beating out of my chest because of the, the weight I carry from the awesome sermon you got last week. So I'm standing here trembling, hoping I can live up. Exodus chapter 32, if you're there, say, I'm there. Now, if you weren't here, my brother preached, so I, I had to throw a shout out to him. He did an awesome job. And in, in Exodus 32, this is a common passage you've heard, and I'm praying that God would shed some new light on it for all of us. It says that when the people saw that Moses was so long, look at someone and say, so long. In coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, this guy, whoever, this random Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. What has ha- He's just been up there for so long. And Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, to, to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Remember, Moses is still up on the mountaintop. He's been there for 40 days. The Lord says to Moses, you got to go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said, and they are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone so that my anger might burn against them and that I might destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all the land I promised them. It will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and didn't bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Father, we bless you today. We thank you for your 
unchanging, immutable word, God. It is, the, it is the means by which we structure our existence, God. Father, we thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us, God, to understand how we should live when we're waiting. Father, someone right now is waiting for an answer from you in this place. It could be any type of situation. Teach us lessons in the waiting. We bless you today. Holy Spirit, speak to your people far better than me. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say amen. You can have a seat in the presence of the Lord. I wanted to uh, start off with a statement uh, written by a good friend of mine is an Orthodox priest. He's down uh, south. And when you think about our culture and, and what happened in, uh, in the church where the pastor and the prayer meeting and all of this stuff, as Christians, sometimes we start to put the guard up. And he wrote this, and I wanted to quote it just as a primer. He says, Christians, we need a cultural reality check. Because the Rome of Jesus and the apostles included this. Now listen, just right when you think your life is hard, I want you to listen to the environment they were living in. Colosseums where slaves, condemned criminals, war spoils, and other unfortunate souls were forced, forced to fight to death for the mass amusement and entertainment of thousands of onlookers. Well, we don't have that going on necessarily Parents could sell their own children into sex slavery or simply leave them out in the wilderness to die of exposure. The imprisoned had no certainty of receiving enough water and food to survive, meaning imprisonment could be a de facto death sentence of a savage kind. Prostitution was not only legal, but practiced everywhere, and brothels were filled with slaves and those otherwise forced to be there. The vulnerable of society had few, if any, rights. Uh, gay people were everywhere in the first century. I could go on, but I'm trying to convey the reality that Christians emerged in a world that was filled with all types of injustice, all types of craziness, disregard. There was no value and no dignity of human life. So as our culture, let's say, retreats from this Christian idea, we've made it. You will have to remember your vocation and your call as believers. I want to charge you to be the light that shines in any type of darkness, any type of situation. Be the beauty in a sea of ugliness. Somebody needs to get a little bit more salty. You need a little more flavor. In your life, you, got, you know what I'm saying? You're the salt of the earth. You are, don't hide your life. You are called to be the light. And now you might have a bigger opportunity to be the light than you've ever had before. Look at someone and say, are you ready to be the light? Look at someone else and say, I don't think so. I know you too well. <laughs> and now, now I'm going to tie this in because there's another reality that we're we're fighting. We're fighting an idea as, a, as a, a culture because some of us have lived long enough to, to remember when the religious framework was the culture we were in, right? Oh, God bless you. I'm going to church this Sunday. 
Most of the people I golf with are atheists. You know, I'm Tom, I'm on the mission field. But there was a time when as a culture, there was this religious situation. People knew what you were talking about when you talked about Jesus, right? Oh yeah, me too. Me too. My, my, yeah, I go to church. I, I go to church. But are we really ready for an environment that might be post-Christian? See, and for us, it's far easier to encourage someone who has never had anything than someone who has had something and lost it. You ever had something and lost it? See, in college, you could live off of $200 for an entire semester. And if you found that girl that you really liked, you throw that $5 out and buy that pizza. We're going, we going big tonight. Somehow you made it work, but once you lose a job where you had a little bit of something and you were making a little bit of money and you lose it, all of a sudden you make more money than you had back then, but you're in a place of despair. Because when you have something and you lose it, when you have some position or some situation or some story or some relationship or some status or some living situation, some health situation, when you go from something to nothing, it's one of the hardest moments for you to recover from. There's this loneliness and there is this solitude. Why are you talking about that? I thought we were talking about a golden calf. Well, see, in Numbers chapter 11, the, the, the Israelites, they sat around in verse 5. They said, don't you remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost? Don't you remember the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic? But now we have lost our appetite because all we have is this stank manna. <laughs> Exodus 16, they used to talk to each other. It says, man, we used to sit around pots of meat. Now, could you imagine, forget about just all of this, what they're eating, but look, think of the landscape. All you see is desert and, and nothingness and rocks. When we were in Egypt, do you remember the massive buildings and the temples and the structures and the agriculture and the sophistication and the worship ceremonies? Do you remember the grandeur of Egypt and everything over in Egypt, we could taste and we could see it and we could, we could feel it. And even if we didn't attain it, we had an idea of what success looked like. We were living around something that felt successful. But now out here in the desert, we are in this place of uncertainty. Look at someone and say uncertainty. It's just nothing. And this overwhelming God comes down on a mountain and we're afraid of this God. And then Mo God says, Moses, I want you to come on up this mountain. And Moses goes up there and 40 days. It's not one week. It's not two weeks. It's not three weeks. Six weeks have gone by. And they're looking at this mountain in utter silence. Exodus 24 tells us that Moses was up there for 40 Days And Moses didn't take a backpack with water and food. When somebody goes up on a mountain, can I just be honest? Somebody goes up on a mountain without a backpack or food and water, they might be dead. He's been up there for six weeks. And chapter 32, verse 1 says that when they saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, 
They gathered around Aaron and said, why don't you make us a God who will go before us? If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down. Your impatience will always be an enemy to your faith. Let me say that again. Your impatience will always be an enemy to your faith. Have you ever wondered why one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Why is that a work of the Spirit? Why, why do I need God to work in me? For, because patience is you waiting for something that you cannot see or feel or taste or touch. It is evidence of the supernatural God working out in your life when you can wait for something you can't see. How many people are waiting for something they don't, they don't see right now? You're, you're looking at, you know God promised you something. I can't see it. It hasn't material. The job I thought, it hasn't worked out. The hell, I'm waiting for something, but I can't see it. I can't taste it. I can't feel it. God, where are you? Have you ever noticed that Jesus is never in a rush? It is almost at a comical level how much he's not in a hurry. He's never, oh snap, I forgot about the synagogue meeting. <laughs> Even when his parents are looking for him as a child, he's like, oh, didn't you know I was, didn't you know I was in my father's house? If my folks were looking for me for a couple of days, I probably would have been run. Jesus is never in a hurry. He's never caught off guard. He's never hovering over the outcome of time. Have you ever read the story of, of Lazarus in John chapter 11? Put a note in your Bible so you can read it later because they come to Jesus and say, they say, Jesus, your friend, the one you love, Lazarus, is sick. And in John chapter 11, it says, when he heard this, he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus, he's sick. Well, I'm just going to chill right here for two more days. Jesus, this is Lazarus we're talking about. This isn't Peter. This is, this is not John. This is your boy. This is Lazarus. I'm just going to stick around for two more days. You don't understand, Jesus. He is very sick. See, when someone is very sick, you'll do whatever you can to go visit them, Right? In the midst of an urgency, even the disciples said, let's go back to Judea where he's at. Even though he's sick and even though people there want to kill you, he's sick now. And Jesus, if you go right now, you can help him out. And Jesus says, I'm just going to sit here for two more days and then Lazarus dies. And then Jesus goes, I'm going to go visit him now. Jesus, okay, all right, Jesus, he's already dead. They tried to stone you there in Judea last time you went. Now you want to go visit him when he's dead. See, the disciples lost the sense of urgency because when somebody dies, you just show up for the funeral, right? You could take your time then. It's already over. It's already done. And they said, Jesus, you can't go back. He's, uh, they tried to stone you there. And then Jesus in verse 9 of John chapter 11 says something so epic. He goes, are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It's when he walks by the night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Not not Jesus, you're going to start talking riddles. Your boy is dead, and now you're talking, you're talking to us in riddles, to walking by the light and by the day and by the night. See, Jesus never works off of your uncertainty. He is not moved by your timetable. See, the disciples around him only can react to what they can see. They only can react to the mood of the moment, to how things look in the natural. He was alive, he was sick, and now he's dead. Jesus says, don't you understand? You don't want me to go there because they might kill me. But my hour has not yet come. I'm the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Nobody can take my life. I lay my life down. That will happen at an appointed time according to my father's will. He's not moved by our situation. Oh, I'm helping somebody. See, because the longer you are held in a place of uncertainty, the longer you are unsure of an outcome, when the only thing that you can see is what is naturally happening around you, that impatience mixes in with the uncertainty that you have and it causes your faith to drop. My question is, how long will it take you before you turn on God? Are you close? Have you been in a place of uncertainty? Are you impatient right now? Is this maybe your last moment? God, if you don't do something, what is your timetable? Moses has been up on that mountain for a long time. We don't see him anymore. We can't fix our eyes on him anymore. Don't you understand, church, that faith is being certain? Oh, I thought we had some believers in here. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we cannot see. See, faith is having a certainty about what I can't see. You can't believe what you see. You just have to see what you believe. This is the reality of faith. Somebody say, you got to see something. By faith, Noah built an ark when it wasn't even raining and saved his family from a storm that he could not see. By faith, Abraham, God said, I need you to go into this land. He, the Bible says he did not know where he was going. He just went. By faith, Abraham, when he was past age, you know what I'm talking about. He couldn't have kids no more. His wife was barren. He trusted in the one who made the promise, and God gave him descendants as numerous as the stars. I don't know how this is going to happen. He couldn't see it. He couldn't. It wasn't the reality. By faith, he put his son Isaac on an altar and assumed, God, I don't know how he's going to work this out. I think it's going to be a resurrection. He couldn't see none of this stuff. 
By faith, Moses' parents hid him in a basket. They decided not to obey the edict of Pharaoh because they saw something special that other people couldn't see in him. And by faith, Moses refused to be acknowledged as the son of Pharaoh, but chose reproach for the sake of Christ. That's not me. That's Hebrews 11. By faith, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Oh, my God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you see something you can't see today. He saw him who is invisible. Now, listen, every great person in the history of the Bible believed in something they could not see. David, you called to be king, but I'm saw and I'm chasing me. I'm in the, how can every person and every great person in this life believes in something they can't see. At some point, somebody said, I don't like riding these bikes. I'm going to invent a car. Well, that's the dumbest idea. Well, I don't know about cars. I'm going to invent a plane. See, it takes you seeing something that people can't see. Everybody was driving around in taxis, and somebody said, you know what? This would be a great way to create, create hundreds of thousands of jobs if we create Uber. Now, anybody can drive. See, somebody saw something beyond the natural, and they stepped out in the Okay, you know what? I'm just talking to Caleb right now. See, that's why after Hebrew, there, there is this progressive revelation of our faith. But in chapter 12, he says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles you and wraps you up and run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, but I cannot see him. I've never seen him, but I'm fixing my eyes on them. And I'm running. See, faith is when you don't allow your circumstances or, or situations to supersede your vision of things which are invisible. Look at someone say, you got to see something you can't see. You have to start trusting God in spite of the time it takes to get your answer. See, the second thing that we see that emerges, is that all right? Is that all right? Can you trust God in spite of the time it takes? If you left here with nothing else but that, we would have a church that would be commended in the Bible. This is what the saints were commended for. The second thing, if you're taking notes, in the very silence of God... God was shaping their destiny. In their perceived silence of God, he was actually shaping their destiny. See, in chapter 24, we see Moses going up into the mountains. And we know this destiny is there when uh, God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years, and I'm going to come and deliver them. And God invited Moses to come up on the mountaintop with him. Do you all know what was happening on the mountaintop? You can look through your Bible later, because I've skipped over a few chapters of the conversation 
that was happening on the mountaintop with Moses. But God comes up there. Have you ever wondered what in the world were they doing for 40 days on the mountaintop? Well, God is giving him some vital information. And if you read Exodus 25 on forward, you'll see the information. And I don't know what it, what it would have looked like. But imagine Moses going up on the mountaintop. And the first day he's there with God Almighty. And God says, the first thing you need to do is take up an offering. I want you to gather yarn and scarlet and silk from the people and gold and all this stuff because, because I'm going to make a place where I live amongst you. Imagine Moses. What? And then the next day, God go, he goes up and God says, now I'm, I'm going to need you to make a chest. We'll call it the Ark of the Covenant, and, and you're going to secure these gold. Read the ornate details of this and the gold of this box. And, and on this box, there's going to be a mercy seat, and I'm going, my presence is going to dwell above this box that you create, the Ark of the Covenant. And here's how I want my house designed. And then, well, you, well what is it, God? Well, the next day he comes up, he says, well, you got to have a table of bread. And you got to put a lampstand, a golden lampstand. And he goes through all of this detail. And then he goes, as for the tabernacle. So you got to quit thinking about it like scripture. You have to think about it like God says, I'm going to set up my little dwelling spot amongst people in the earth. It all has to be exactly right. See, God, God likes things a certain way. And he says, as for the tabernacle, I want 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And I want some master skilled person who can create cherubim to sew that. This is, this is far beyond the sewing ministry we have at the church. I, you got to put some gold cherubim in, in the yarn. And Moses is sitting there. And now, now you don't understand. If I'm going to dwell there, I, you got to follow my laws and my commands. And here's the thing. I'm going to want people outside that serve me. So the priests, they need to wear these certain garments and these vestments. And they have to have oil. And there has to be atonement money and taxes and all this stuff. And it continues. And, and Moses is up there day after day. Can, have you ever thought about Moses writing this down? He's in one of the most glorious moments that God wants to come down and be with his people. When all of the people thought God and Moses had vanished, they were, he was actually shaping their destiny. The people confused silence for absence. Look at someone and say they thought his silence was his absence. The point I'm saying in all of this is that when you think God is silent, he is not absent. God has a tendency oftentimes of shaping our destiny when it's quiet. See, God was in the, pro you got to hear this. He was in the process of giving them something that they could see and feel and touch the very thing they wanted, but all they could do is focus on what they didn't have in their immediate situation. How many people, all you can focus on is the problem right now? What do you do when the people of God have a bad theology? 
See, they come and they say to Aaron, this is, if you want to write notes, my next two points are what, what well, I'll give you the first point. What, what can we do when the people of God have a bad theology? See, in verse 1, they said, Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. As for this guy Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. All right, church, can I ask, can I ask a quick question for all of you Bible scholars? Who brought them out of Egypt? <laughs> who brought them out of Egypt? Who's the main actor in all of the Bible? Did Moses bring them? Moses was a shepherd over with Jethro's sheep. Mo, but they said, this fellow Moses who brought us out, who is their deliverer? Who is the one worthy of worship? They're over here looking at a man who didn't. What happens when the people of God have a bad theology? This fellow Moses who brought us out, he is already gone. Mo, Moses didn't bring you out. God did. Moses is just, remember Joshua? Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Joshua, go ahead. You get to work. The only thing that made Moses special was that God was with him. God brought him out. And when they thought, when their theology was bad, when your theology is bad, all you can do is take action on your own. See, I'm going to have scripture interpret scripture so you don't think I'm winging it. But Acts chapter 7 Verse 39 says, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. You know, Their heart, in their heart, they had already turned back to Egypt, the Bible tells us. Have you been in a place of uncertainty so long that your heart has already gone back to Egypt? Have you been in a place of waiting so long that you're just saying, God, I'm your your heart, you're here in church, but your heart is back somewhere else. You know what is interesting in this passage of scripture? They turn from God. Now, listen. They did not stop worshiping. Isn't isn't that interesting that they turned from Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but they said, we want another God to worship. They didn't stop worshiping. They said, Aaron, we need you to make us a God that we can worship. And then they gave their most precious possessions Oh, see, I'm talking to somebody here. Yeah, we take an offering here at church. I know that gets us sensitive and we don't want to talk about it right now. But the reality is, is if you turn from God, you're going to give offering somewhere. You will give your most precious possessions to something. That's the because re- in our hearts, we were created to worship. Where your treasure is. So, all right, you know what? God's not holding you in bondage. Because when you turn, it might be baseball. It might be, ba- it might be that 
person. It might be that thing that you're somewhere. You're going to start worshiping something. Because we give to that which we worship. Here's our gold, Aaron. Where did they get this gold from? <laughs> these, are, these were slaves. Where did, they, where did they get this gold from, huh? <laughs> where, they, where did all these slaves, have you ever asked that? Where did they get all this gold from? It doesn't just say like the women had gold on. It said the women and the men and the sons and the kids, everybody has some gold on them. Like, it looked like y'all of y'all got some gold on you. You know, it's, it's, have you ever thought about that? Do you realize God gave them that so that when they left, they could build his tabernacle so that they would have something to offer to make his presence that God gave them that they want something tangible. So they took their earrings, and that which was already in their possession, and they fashioned it into a god. Do you realize that the idol that they created was already on their person? I know I'm preaching good. You don't have to cry just yet. He's with me. This brother is with me. See, they already, they were carrying around the very thing that they fashioned into an idol. Look at someone and say, it's already on you. See, if I were to ask you right now, what is that competing influence with God? You don't need the Holy Spirit to point it out. You already know what it is. Amen. I thought I would get a few more. Don't make me call you out. You already know Am I right? You already know the thing you're dealing with. That if you turn, you're going to go back to eat. You, I don't need to explain it. You already know what that thing is. It's not something foreign. It's readily available like the gold earring. James says you are dragged away by your own evil desire. It is specific to you right now. Don't make me ask your spouse. She already knows that thing that always drawing you away from God. What is that thing that's already with you? See, they, they cast this idol in the shape of a calf, which was Canaanite religion. It was, it was the Egyptian religion, the way they, the, they were, their hearts had already turned back to Egypt. What's the golden calf in our lives? See, Aaron doesn't help the situation because Aaron is just a classic people pleaser. He's always trying to keep the peace. And Moses comes to him in verse 21 of Exodus 32. He says, why'd you leave these people into such terrible sin? Listen to Aaron. He goes, don't be angry, my Lord. Oh, Moses, my Lord, don't be angry. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said, make us gods who go before us. As for this Moses, what happened? So I told him, if you have gold jewelry, give it here. And I just threw it into the fire and boom, a calf hopped out. Moses, that's literally what he says. When earlier we we saw they fashioned it with a tool. He's like, no, I just took the gold. You know how these people are. And Aaron tries to mix it up, and he's like, oh, well, we got the golden calf. Read the next verse. He's like, we're going to have a festival unto our God, too. 
So it's kind of like a worship, and we're going to have this blended worship service. But we see in verse 6 that this festival that had this sort of pagan thing happening, and then this worship of God ended up in revelry. And everywhere else in, in Scripture where that word is used, there's this sexual connotation with it. The people, in verse 25, it says they were running wild and became a joke to everyone else. See, when you start going back towards Egypt, things get out of hand real quick. Somebody say zero to 100 real quick, real fast. Once you start turning and blending and waiting for something tangible that you could see, it could get ugly real quick. Look at someone say real quick. Now, before I close, we've talked about Moses and we've talked about the people, but we have to go before the one who matters. Let's check on God's perspective. My next point for you is this, and this is really my closing thought. But what do you do when God has bad theology? (sighs) What do you do when God has bad theology? Okay, stick with me for a second. Because in verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, remember who brought them out of Egypt? The Lord says to Moses, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. What? Have become corrupt. <laughs> God says, that's God's like, no, Moses, no, son, your people. You, you think Jesus, Jesus would have been a fun person to hang out with. Those are your people. I was claiming them at one point, but your people whom you brought out of Egypt, those are the ones, they have become corrupt. God uses the very same language that he used when he pronounced judgment before flooding the earth. And he even offers Moses the same deal. I'll kill all of them, and I'll make something special out of you, Moses. See, you have to realize there are times in Scripture where God just says, you know what, I'll, with your situation, I'm good. Now, you, it's gone a little bit too far. I'm good. Jacob, I want to wrestle with you. My brother Esau is going to kill me. I'm wrestling God. Please bless me. And God's like, hell, hold up, hold up. It's daybreak. I got to I gotta go. And James like, no, you can't go unless you bl-. see, because sometimes God just says, I'm good. Your situation is just suspect. I'm good. Romans 1 says God gave them over. I'm good. So what do you do when God has bad theology? You do what Moses did. Moses does something that no one in the world thinks that he's going To do, he intercedes on behalf of the people. In verse 11, Moses says to God, think of of Moses talking to God. He says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out with a great power and a mighty hand? All of your haters, all of the Egyptians will say it was with evil intent that you brought them out to kill them and wipe them off the face. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants and the land that you promised. Don't you remember, God, your inheritance that you told them they would have? 
And the Bible says one of the most powerful statements. It says, then the Lord relented and did not bring the disaster he threatened. I want to close with one thought about God. God has cultivated a relationship that invites humanity's dialogue and input. Somebody should have been excited a a little more. God cultivates a relationship where little old humans like y'all, y'all people, he values your input. He values your dialogue. Moses intercedes in the midst of the fury of God. See, we, lo- we would love to fashion a God like Aristotle's unmoved mover that's so distant and beyond us and that's out there. We can't see him. We can't, t- we can't touch him. But what we see in this passage of Scripture is a God who longs for relationship. A God who is moved by your intercession. How many people realize your requests matter to God? He's not, he's listening, he's hearing our requests. How many people realize that your anxiety matters to God? Your worries matter to God. We see a God who is willing to withhold his wrath because of one person's intercession. And this same God calls you and I into relationship with him. With real results. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Cast all of your cares upon me. Do not Worry if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven and I will hear their land. He says, come to me because I'm all you need. Come to me because I am your every." If there is anything you need of God today, church, all you have to do is just ask. Stand with me all over this place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come to me. I'm all you need. We're going to make today very practical. I want you to just lift up holy hands in prayer. You might be in a place of uncertainty. You might be on your own timetable. Today might have been your final moment. If you didn't make it through today, I don't know what you would have done. But maybe you were in your heart, you had already turned back to that thing God had delivered you from. You'd already gone back to Egypt. But God is encouraging this entire church today to see what we believe. To not fix our eyes on things that are temporal, things that we can touch, things that we can feel, but believe God for something bigger that he has promised us. 
Well, Lord, I don't know where this church is going, God. I can't, don't see. I don't know. We don't have a building. We don't have this. But, God, your word says that you are building your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, I can't see it all the way right now, but, God, I trust you. See, I don't, I don't know what you need to trust him for today, but I want you to begin to trust him. The Bible says to speak those things, God. Speak those things out into the existence. God, we don't know what it is. Someone here today, God, has been praying for some health, God. And they can't see it because all of the reports, everything they've gone through is saying something different. But right now, God, we trust that you're still our healer. Ah, that's a hard one to see. That's a hard one for me to see right now, God. But you're still my healer. There's people here dealing with financial struggles right now. I'm just being very practical. We don't do all this prosperity gospel nonsense. But today you're dealing with some very real, you need some provision. And everything around you is saying it's not going to happen. But God says, I am your provider. Lord, I can't see that right now, but I'm going to trust you. Right now, today, God, we turn back to you. What is it that you need God to do? There's a child who's ran away. There's something going on. Lord, we turn back to you right now and we trust you. (laughs) Lord, let faith arise. We reject the uncertainty of our situations, God. We reject the timetable that we place on things, God, and we place it into your hands, God. Father, you are the eternal God. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Father, we turn to you right now, and we give you all of our cares. Church, begin to cast your cares upon them. Speak that thing out. Speak it out to God. Lord, we trust you today. Lord, we trust you today. I pray for an overflow of faith in this house, God, that we would not be moved, moved by the things we see, but God, move us by that which we can't see. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus. The glory, we will not trade the glory of the invisible God for things that we fashioned with our hands. But let all glory be unto you, God. Lord, we thank you. It is so. It is so, God. By the mighty name of Jesus, God, you said we overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Father, I pray for great testimonies in this house of your faithfulness and your goodness, God, and how you are God above all, Lord. Draw us back into a place of intimacy and longing and desperation, God, and a passion, God. Bring us back the passion we had for you. Bring us back to our first love today and let faith arise in your people. Do you receive it today? Give him praise, give him glory, give him honor, give him thanks. Lord, we receive it today, God. Now, God, I pray that you would bless your people and keep them and make your face shine upon them. Give us hope and give us peace. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. God bless you all. God bless you all.
Oh. 
worship it.